you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Do you have to be a techno geek to start a makerspace? Why are school makerspaces a great social equalizer? How large a log can a small SUV pull? And what is Steve's favorite kind of chainsaw? <laughs> Tune into today's episode to find out the answers to these and other questions. Happy New Year, Innovation Nation. It's still January, so take advantage of this fresh start to set some goals. If you've had trouble making New Year's resolutions and not keeping them, perhaps try something new this year. Instead of making mere resolutions, set some concrete goals. It is more possible than you think. I just finished setting my goals for 2015 at the end of December. It isn't too late even now. Go look up Your Best Year Ever by Michael Hyatt. This is the second year I've used his course and it really works. I'm not receiving a commission or even an affiliate kickback from him for this. I just want you to realize your dreams. And you can do that by setting realistic but gutsy goals. Finding your motivation for reaching those goals and then tracking with your progress throughout the year. I'll link up his course in the show notes. It does require an investment, but I found last year that it was worth every penny I spent and more. So I bought his course again this year. Go do something amazing. And speaking of amazing, you guys continue to leave us amazing feedback on our iTunes page. This week, Shirley Shobe says, I agree that teaching to the test stifles learning, but giving students the tools for learning and independence to pursue interests helps spur creative learning. It's the stuff of new inventions. This type of learning excites me. Well, thank you, Shirley. We appreciate the high praise and we'll strive to live up to it. We also want to share this week that we've started a new Stitcher on-demand radio page. So just go to the Stitcher site and search for Tabletop Inventing. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. But if you know any Android users, share our Stitcher podcast page with them. On today's show, we are featuring Judy Hauser. Judy started a makerspace last fall, and we decided to share her story because many teachers want to know how real people start a makerspace. I suppose that's no offense to mad scientists like me, but we do want to spread the word that makerspaces can be started by anyone with a big idea. So without further ado, Judy Hauser. So my guest today is Judy Hauser, and she is the lower school librarian at Holy Trinity Episcopal Academy in Melbourne, Florida. And she says that she loves sharing great books with her students and learning about new technologies. And we wanted to talk to Judy because their school recently created a makerspace in their library. And she says that being a school librarian is the best job in the world. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Judy. Well, I am a graduate of the University of Tennessee with a bachelor's degree in elementary education. And then I have a master's of library service from the University of Alabama. I have been the school librarian at Holy Trinity in Melbourne for 11 years. And prior to that, I taught kindergarten for 10 years and was also 
a proposal specialist for a library software company. A proposal specialist? Yes, that means that um, consultants that were looking to buy a software system would send me a list of about 100 questions, and I would answer whether or not our system could do those things. Ah, interesting. Got a lot of our teachers uh, talk to us and have questions about uh, writing proposals. So you're on the other side of that, uh, discussing whether or not your systems could meet the needs for their proposal. Correct. So tell us a little bit about your makerspace and, and the story behind how that got created. Well, I'm married to a techno geek, and he's always coming home and telling me what my kids at school need. So first he started talking about a Raspberry Pi and what I could do with a Raspberry Pi. So we bought one, and I learned a few things over the summer about it. Um, about the same time that makerspaces were becoming a popular thing for school libraries. So I began to pursue that. And my head of lower school and my head of school, which is over both our lower and upper divisions, uh, took a visit up to the University of Florida to visit their fab lab, which is a fabrication lab. And I got excited thinking they were going to put it on my campus. But it turns out they're looking for adding it to our upper school campus. But because of their interest, when I mentioned a makerspace, they immediately got on board and found support and within... I guess five months we had it in place. Wow. So you live with a techno geek. What's that like? It's expensive, <laughs> but, it, but it's great because he knows things before I know, know them. I mean, not long after the Raspberry Pi, he's telling me how I need to get a 3D printer for my children. And because we're on the Space Coast, our kids really do need to have STEM skills. That's where the careers are. We have Northrop Grumman. We have, um, oh, every large company that deals in the space industry is in this city. So um, it's very important for us. And because we're so close to Cape Kennedy, it's important for these children to be prepared to go out into the job market with real marketable skills. And for us, it's going to be the STEM skills. So he understands that he works in the industry himself. Um, he actually works for the company that funded our makerspace that helped us um, with a $10,000 grant. So that's a lot of how um, our makerspace um, equipment was purchased and the actual space was built. So it's great being married to a techno geek. <laughs> so is he an engineer or a mathematician, a, a, a basic scientist? What, what, is his, what is his background? He is uh, a geospatial analyst is his title. He programs and teaches, has taught himself to program in about eight different languages, and that is what he does for fun. Um, he <laughs> loves math, but his degrees actually are in geology and geography. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your interest in technology and how that relates to your kids. Well, my interest in technology is directly related to my students. Um, I am about maybe 10 years out from retirement, and I understand that um, librarians coming out of library school nowadays, the technology is second nature to them. They grew up with it where I did not. And because it's so important to my students, I feel like I would do a disservice to them if I didn't jump on board and learn the technology and teach it to them and in some cases let them teach it to me. Because if they had a younger librarian, they would do that automatically. So it just makes sense to me. 
Plus, I feel like maybe it's going to help me stave off Alzheimer's. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, just, I'm learning a great thing. I make lots of contacts, um, have just gone to some great conferences. And it's been it's been a lot of fun for me to learn these new things. How long have you been looking into uh, maker education and maker spaces? I would say just about a year. I probably started around Christmas last year. Um, in June, I went to ISTE, the uh, International Society for Technology and Education Conference, and I learned so much there. Um, my administration is very much on board with technology. In addition to our makerspace, we also have a STEM lab where classes are taught, scheduled classes are taught, and then we have STEM lessons in the classroom as well. So I would say just about a year. I'm fairly new to the maker movement. So it sounds like you're game for all kinds of new stuff. Has this always been the case, or is this kind of a, a recent uh, dawning of, of, of a thought? I think I've always been game to learn new things. When I first went to work for the company that I did proposal work for, it was 30 years ago, and even just manipulating a computer was new to me. But it just makes life so much easier, and it just keeps getting better and better, so why not learn it? So I, I have a confession to make. So I'm the techno geek in, in our house, and my wife is the teacher. So I evidently uh, have a lot to learn on the teaching side. As someone who didn't come at this you know, as a techno geek, what was the hardest thing getting started with the makerspace? The hardest thing getting started was learning the technology, um, learning how to use the Raspberry Pi. Um, I bought a Makey Makey. And I think part of it was my expectations. I thought it would be like a Bill Gates moment that I would be somewhere 20 years from now and some millionaire child would say, oh, I owe it all to Mrs. Hauser who let us have a makerspace in the library. But the students have been a little more reserved getting into using things on their own. They really are waiting for some guidance. But once they see what it can do, then they take off. So. I have used a lot of YouTube videos to show them what other people are doing with the technology. And when they see all the possibilities, then they're getting in there and getting involved. Interesting. So you're finding that the students need a little bit of a creativity prompt or maybe a, a technology understanding prompt? Right. I think they just need to see it modeled. That's the first step is they need to see it modeled. Um, we have a Makey Makey, which turns anything into a key. As far as operating a computer system, you can use it, you know, to hook up to eight bananas and play a song on the keyboard on the computer. But they didn't understand that you had to have a ground to make the circuit connect. <laughs> Once they learned that and they saw that, then they knew all the directions to go in. I also find that there are most likely to read the directions last. So if I put up, you know, go to this website, no, they want to try to fiddle with it till they figure it out. They don't want to read the instructions. Well, my wife would say that that sounds familiar. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's, and it's familiar for me, too, because my motto is, if all else fails, read the instructions. So tell me about some of the projects that the students have done uh, in the makerspace so far. Well, we've only been fully operational oh, since maybe October, and 
because the 3D printer is a novelty and a new thing in our school, I wanted everybody first grade through sixth grade to be able to create a project with it. So we settled on a backpack tag, and they can put whatever edifying word or initials or whatever they want to on it. And we used a program called Tinkercad, which is free, and everyone designed a backpack tag, and then we printed them out. That gave them the skills for using the 3D printer. And then from there, they could go on and design anything they want. I've had one child design a spoiler for his remote control car that got broken. Um, one child designed a stand for their Lego figures. And then um, I've had children design like a, a model of the Lincoln Memorial. They, they can get complicated pretty quickly, but it's exciting to see what they do. So what's your favorite part of the makerspace? My favorite part of the makerspace is the makey-makey, just because there's so many things you can do with it, and it's uh, lots of fun. The, the printing is exciting, too, and there are so many additional projects that you can do. There's a program where students partner with a hospital, and they print out the parts for a prosthetic hand that will actually be used um, for a child who needs a hand and they um, give you the model but then the students have to go in and adjust it to fit the aged child so they tell you what the measurements are and they go in and they manipulate the pattern and then they print it out and then we send those parts to the hospital and they will put it together to make the prosthetic hand so there they're seeing that they have skills that are actually benefiting someone else but it's not just printing out something for fun it's actually printing out something that is useful so how much have you guys done with that? Is that the Enable platform that you guys, the Enable website that you guys are working with, or is it another one? No, it's Enable. So, and we actually, we're going to start that um, after Christmas break. We have three boys in third grade that need a challenge, and so our goal is to get them up and running with that, and then they will teach the rest of their classmates how to do it. That's excellent. We find that teachers when faced with this idea of, you know, someone says, hey, you need to create a makerspace, they don't really know what to make. But when you start from this idea, wow, I think we should have a makerspace, and you start getting all of these ideas, and then you go, you know, uh, talk to someone and get them on board, and then you go get the tools and you get the students involved, that trickles down to the point where you just said the boys needed a challenge, and you're going to get them started, and then they're going to run with it and teach the other kids. And that's what... Right. That's just so powerful to see the kids going from being a learner to being an instructor. Yes, that's how we did with our 3D printer originally, is I had the children design their um, project on Tinkercad, and then they would need to put it on an SD card, so they would have to transfer it from an STL file to a 3XG. I would show the first student. He would show the second. The second would show the third. So instead of me having to be involved with 18 children at one time, I only had to be involved with the first one. Wow, that is excellent. So you said that your inspirational quote was, imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited to all we now know and understand, while imagination embraces the entire world and all there will ever be to know and understand. Why does that quote inspire you? Well, I think imagination is just amazing because we just have no idea and could not even conceive of how far what we learn would go. We learn more now every day than probably people did 100 years ago in a year. And I like to 
tell my students about Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote The Little House on the Prairie books. She was born three years after the end of the Civil War and died the year that I was born. She saw both world wars. She saw the invention of the car, the invention of the airplane, the invention of the computer, um, the television. She went out west in a covered wagon and could fly back east in a jet. Okay, I was born the year that she died, and I will see much more and much more marvelous things than she saw in her lifetime, and the changes in her lifetime were pretty fabulous. Wow. I guess I hadn't thought about that recently, but my, my grandma used to talk to me about uh, plowing the field with their uh, their mule and because uh, she grew up in Iowa. And uh, that is a fantastic change because that's exactly what happened with uh, with her is, you know, she grew up with this type of technology and then moved out to California. And then when they came back, when I was a kid and moved back east because uh, I grew up in North Carolina, they, they did. They flew back uh, in a plane and I never thought of it that way, that that's the, t that's the way the change happened. Right. And when I was growing up, it was a big deal to call my grandparents long distance because of the expense. And now we're, you know, talking over the computer. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> so we've danced around this a little bit. One of the questions that I like to ask as we start uh, moving into the podcast a little further is the computer now is out there. So, you know, we're, we're on Skype. We're recording this. Uh, across, you know, the internet, which didn't even exist when I was a, you know, kid growing up, with all of the tools that are out there, Google and Wikipedia and all the e-learning websites, what does it mean in this environment to be educated? I think to be educated in this environment is to be able to know how to retrieve information, determine whether or not it is useful and valid, how to create and communicate information, but just knowing knowledge for the sake of knowing knowledge, unless it gets you somewhere else, there's not much point. I mean, most things that are like historical dates or information, we can look up in less than a second and find out our answers. So really we want information that allows us to reach our goals, not just to know something for knowledge's sake. Is that a, a big shift in our educational thinking or is that something we've always done? I think it needs to be a big shift in our educational thinking. My concern is that we continue to teach the same things that we've always taught, and then we want to add these new technologies and new things, and teachers feel overwhelmed like there's just not enough time in the day. So I think we need to look at what our goals are and what we are teaching as far as content and determine do we need to let some of something else go in order to incorporate the new? That's an interesting perspective. I think I think you're you're onto something there. What would you tell um, another librarian or another teacher in a school who is strongly considering starting a makerspace? I would say go for it, and you know, even if you have to start small. Our makerspace was formerly a book nook that um, had different levels with carpet that the children read in, um, and it would accommodate four children. My makerspace accommodates four children, and of course I want everyone involved. So what I did was I got just plastic bins, and I cleared off a shelf of library books and made space, and so four children can be actually in the makerspace, and that holds our Raspberry Pi, our Makey Makey, and the 3D printer. 
but I have 12 computers that they can go to to create their 3D prints. And then they have bins of items like little bits and erector sets and um, snatch circuits. And I guess there's maybe 14 different bins over there that they can use to take to the tables. And then they're collaborating. Before we began the makerspace, when I finished a library lesson, students that weren't into reading just wanted to sit around and talk or could be distracting. But now they get out of bin, they start building together, they start collaborating. We actually took a small train table and put it in the library workroom and students go back there to create a Rube Goldberg machine. And they love creating the Rube Goldberg machine. So I don't want you to put any students on the spot here, but if you were to pick one student and looking at uh, how they interacted with the library a year ago before you did this, or maybe even six months ago before you did this and today, what differences have you seen in that particular student? Well, I have one student who I would say would not be the most popular child in the classroom just because he's a little quirky, but he is really good in the makerspace and it attracts the other students to him because he can show them how to do things, he can explain things. So now he's collaborating and contacting with, with his peers where before he wasn't. So I've found that it's a great equalizer that um, children choose their activities based on the activity and not because their friend is doing it. Wow, that is a great story. So he has basically gotten social credibility because he knows how to build things and make things, and the makerspace has basically given him a vocabulary for speaking to other students. Right, right, because the very things that made him kind of quirky before make him shine now. I love it. Well, I don't want to keep you too long because I know that you're on a school schedule. The last question we always like to ask, we always like to get to this, is what is the purpose of an education? I think the purpose of an education is to prepare a person for life, especially when you're taking a child and you want them to be successful in reaching their goals and objectives. You want to give them the tools and the skills that they can continue to build with. I think that's really an important part of the makerspace is that students can guide their own learning. And if they realize that they can reach an objective in the makerspace, they realize they can reach that objective in other ways, that they didn't necessarily have to have somebody spoon feed them, that they could be responsible for their own learning. And we want to be lifelong learners. So the best part of an education is giving children the tools to do that. How does that affect the students? Like you've watched that happen. How have you seen that affecting the students as they interact with the makerspace? I find that they are less likely to ask me for help and more likely to ask a peer. I see that once they understand how one of the aspects of the makerspace operates, that they are willing to try new things with it, um, that they are not inhibited anymore once they understand that, oh, I can do this with the Makey Makey, now let's see what else I can do. I guess they, they get independent. They become independent, but then they're also working as a team, they're collaborating, and, you know, what better skills to have for the workplace someday is to be able to be a self-starter, to be able to try new things, but also be able to work with others to obtain your goals. Wow. I don't think we could end any better than that. So I'm just going to ask you to stick around for a little bit after we wrap it up. But as we close, why don't you let us 
let our audience know how they can get in touch with you because I'm sure there'll be a few teachers out there that'll want to uh, shoot you an email or call you or can contact you, whatever's the most convenient way, and ask about your makerspace. Oh, that would be great. Um, I can be followed on Twitter at jhauser1. It's house with followed by an R, um, H-O-U-S-E-R-1. And then um, my email is judy.hauser at h-t-e-s dot org. H-t-e-s is Holy Trinity Episcopal School dot org. Thank you, Judy. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us today in the podcast. Thank you, Steve. It was my pleasure. If you've never heard a good chainsaw, I'll link up a video showing the sound and power in the show notes. Now, I'm no pro at this, as my friend Garrett would no doubt tell you. He's a real pro. He climbs, cuts, tops, and pretty much knows the whole timber industry backwards and forwards. I'm not quite as cool as Garrett with a chainsaw, but I'm still a little bit of a chainsaw snob and biased toward Husqvarna. A still is still a good saw, but I digress. Cutting and moving wood from the forest to my home is a very satisfying experience. It sort of makes me feel like Paul Bunyan or Davy Crockett. It reaches down to some sort of primal part of my soul that needs to feel powerful. Or maybe it's just being macho, like my wife says, as she smiles and bats her eyes at me. I don't know exactly, but I know I like it. Sometimes there just aren't great explanations for some of the things we like. We just do. I probably like the whole gathering wood process because it makes me feel manly. In fact, the last time the kids and I went out to cut wood, with a valid California woodcutting permit, we were treated to a very fun time. Now, when we go cutting wood, I love rolling the logs down the hill. It it feels so powerful in sort of a destructive sort of way. It's probably not the most environmentally sensitive thing to do, but I love watching and hearing a huge log tumbling, crashing, and leaping down a hill. Now, before you turn me into the authorities for reckless endangerment or something, we typically block the road below where we're cutting, and just a few feet from the road where we were cutting the last time, there was a large wash that caught any stray logs, so we were being more or less safe. But it still gave us quite a thrill. To save time, we cut the logs double length because we could make the other cuts at home. Out in the wild, it takes a long time to sharpen a chainsaw, and I'm just too cheap to have more than one extra chainsaw blade. So we economize on cutting. After driving around the treacherous dirt roads for about 45 minutes or so, we finally found our ideal tree. In California where we live, trees have to be dead and down in order for us to legally cut them. So, But down here in Southern California, it helps to keep the fire dangers down a little. Well, there it was. A beautiful downed tree, at least 75 or 80 feet long and a good 2 to 2.5 feet in diameter. I mean, we could have driven around another 2 or 3 hours and not found as good an opportunity as this. So, to make matters even better, there was a wash right beside the road, as I said, to catch any stray tumbling timber. So the kids and I headed up the 100 yards or so to the tree while we left a couple of kids down to watch the road. Uh, I have lots of kids, so taking two up the hill and leaving two down the hill still leaves me a couple. We set to work cutting mostly through the huge tree. That's a trick we, we use sometimes. If you cut 70 to 80% through and then roll the tree 180 degrees, then you can cut the rest without running your chainsaw blade into the ground, literally. So after our first pass down the tree and the partial cuts and trimming off the branches, we gave the tree a good push. 
well, <laughs> honestly, the size of the tree and how long it had been down, it, it took us a good five minutes with levers and shovels to get it to budge. But it finally grudgingly started to go. And then, as we knew it would, it began to go completely out of control in a melee down the hill for 30 feet or so until it hit the next big tree where it kind of angrily stopped. I think it, too, was enjoying the thrill more than we were and was none too pleased at the delay. Well, we set to work freeing one piece after the other, and as we did, each piece weighing easily four or five hundred pounds each went careening down the hill, literally pile-driving the road as they came to rest. I mean, it was amazing. But loading those monstrosities into the trailer was not quite as fun, but we did manage, and that happy tree kept us warm most of the winter. Not all my cutting and burning stories involve chainsaws, though. My friend Steve and I went out camping one year in Pennsylvania. We'd gotten a late start, and by the time we rolled into our godforsaken patch of wilderness for the weekend, it was almost midnight, and it had started to snow. We left the lights of the truck on as we set up camp and spent a very cold night shivering in our sleeping bags. Well, the next morning, we set to work collecting firewood for a fire as soon as the twilight gave us enough light to stumble through the forest. And we managed to get a good fire going, but the little 18-inch bow saw we had was no Husqvarna 550 Rancher, I'm telling you that. After breakfast, we decided to go looking for more wood. With the snow and the chill, we decided we needed something that would burn for a while as we sat around the fire campfire swapping manly stories. Well, it took us about five minutes to discover the forest road at the other end of the field, and only about another five minutes after that to find one of the biggest logs I have ever attempted to burn. Now, I'm not kidding when I say that it was four or four and a half feet in diameter and seven or eight feet long. Well, if you do a little bit of algebra, you can convince yourself that at 30 to 40 pounds per cubic foot, this log was somewhere between three and 5,000 pounds. Now, that would burn a long time, we decided. Now, of course, the only possible way for us to get that log to the fire pit was to use the truck we brought. But my truck for all the gearheads out there, was an old Ford Bronco 2, 1990s vintage, with a Ford 302 stuffed under the hood. That's another story for another day. Anyway, it had the power, but a mere 3,400 pounds curb weight. So even fully loaded, it didn't have more than maybe 4,000 pounds, uh, like, wet. So even fully loaded, we didn't have more than about 4,000 pounds at our disposal. Even a moderate amount of physics here will tell you that under the best conditions, pulling a 3,000-pound log with a 4,000-pound truck won't get you very far. We didn't have the benefit of the internet to look up the typical wood density, so we just tied a rope to it to see if we could pull it. And as you would expect, we just ended up spinning the tires, literally. However, never underestimate a scientist on a mission. We did find a way to drag that silly log 150 to 200 yards to our fire without taking advantage of rolling friction versus dragging friction. How, you might ask? <laughs> well, every good physicist knows that even a small object when colliding with a large object has the potential to move the large object somewhat. No, we did not ram the log with my beloved truck. We simply found out that the rope we had was capable of several thousand pounds of tension as we got a running start with the truck. We would back the truck up to the log until the bumper touched, and then we gunned it, and when the rope was fully extended, it would stretch four or six feet, and then the log would hop forward three or five feet. It took us a little patience and some time, 
But we managed to get that log all the way to the fire. And it burned all day and part of the next. And when we left, we had to put the log, the fire and the log out because we only managed to burn less than 20 or 30 percent of it. And <laughs> Steve and I always wondered what the next campers thought of our rather large offering by the fire pit. By now I'm sure that you are wondering about the morals of this story. Crashing logs causing mass carnage and wastefully burning 30 cubic feet of wood just to keep two camping buddies warm for a day and a half. These are not the moral of this story, but they are related. As humans, we seem to need significance. Doing big things excites us, while trifles only mildly amuse us for a few moments. The campfire story is now about 10 years old, but I still get a kick out of remembering it, and more so when I tell it. I love the thought that I did something ridiculous and audacious. Why is that? I'm fond of saying by now that I'm not a spiritual advisor or metaphysical prognosticator. However, I have observed myself, read books, and watched quite a few people, including my kids. And we all seem to need some sort of a purpose. I'm not sure why, but doing something significant, even though it may be as simple as cutting a little firewood, just ignites the imagination and gets us moving. That motion and meaning pushes us to do things that sometimes are downright ludicrous. But I'm a firm believer in the quote by George Bernard Shaw. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Go do something big this week. It wouldn't hurt if you did a little physics or engineering along the way. You'll feel great. Have you been enjoying the Tabletop Inventing Podcast? Have comments or questions you'd like us to address? Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Mm -hmm.